started crying at that particular point in time because I knew that this was the moment that he was actually going to come and you know you realize he's only just 25 weeks like am I going to lose my baby is he actually going to survive and then what are the next month or years ahead going to look like is it a big company that blood pressure is not coming up Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. I've done over 40 interviews so far on the Flying Doctor podcast and almost all of these have been interviews with people who live, work or travel in rural and remote Australia. This podcast interview instead is regarding a young family from Brisbane who got stuck in Melbourne when a pregnancy took an unexpected turn. Kobe Foster is a dynamic, professional woman who, at 25 weeks pregnant, took a trip with her husband Dave to Melbourne for a friend's social event. Expecting nothing unusual, their whole life got turned upside down when their baby boy Jensen was born four months premature. Kobe is here with me to explain what happened. Welcome, Kobe. Hi, Lana. <laughs> Thank you for having me. No worries. Before we get started, I just wish to register a complaint that as we speak, you are sitting in Brisbane on a warm winter's day, what I would call a warm winter's day, and I'm down here on the southern tablelands of New South Wales where it is frosty and cold and freezing. You used to live in the Canberra region when you were at university, right? Yes, I um, I was born in Wollongong um, but spent most of my childhood in Canberra Yeah, and left after I finished my university degree well a few years later actually <laughs> yeah I started working. do you miss the Canberra winters uh no not particularly but uh, <laughs> it is nice to have a little bit of cold weather every now and then so um yeah uh, a little bit but not so much <laughs> right so you did a communications degree and then law here in Canberra how did you end up in Brisbane oh uh, well the short version I ended up in Sydney working for a, a big law firm um after I left Canberra and an opportunity presented for me to move to Cairns to volunteer with Noel Pearson on a project up through Cape York. So I took that path. I had no ties, I guess, in Sydney or anywhere else. So yeah, just decided to see what would eventuate by taking that opportunity. So I ended up in Cairns where I started my career in native title. I went from being a tax lawyer in Sydney and Canberra to doing something completely different and um getting to explore and travel through Cape York. Yeah, so I spent four years in Cairns doing native title. And then, yeah, my brother was in Brisbane Gold Coast region. So I had some friends that had moved up from Canberra to live in Brisbane. So I just thought after Cairns, I didn't quite want to go back to the cold Canberra winter. 
Um, so I thought I'd give Brisbane a go. Yeah, and it's well, nearly 10 years later, I'm, I'm in Brisbane. And that's where I met my partner, Dave. That's fabulous. Now, working native titles, I presume that means that you're working on Indigenous native titles for claims and that sort of thing. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's correct. So um, I work for an organisation called Queensland South Native Title Services, and we're the statutory body under the Native Title Act, which represents um, First Nations people in having their native title recognised and then post-native title as well, working with corporations. And yeah, I get to travel around Queensland and see some pretty amazing places and work with some pretty amazing people. Oh, that's fabulous. So you and Dave then are in Brisbane and you became pregnant. Yes, that's correct. When was when was this? Um, That was 2016, I guess. So we bought our first home and we bought our puppy dog um, a few months before that and yeah we we thought we'd start a family it happened a lot quicker than we thought it would so yeah I fell pregnant and um yeah everything was pretty standard I guess at the beginning (laughs) until it all happened so I guess yeah I was 20 I don't know 25 I think sorry not 25 35. That's great now your first trimester was uneventful and you were invited down to Melbourne for a friend uh what was the event and and what were you planning to do? Yeah, so Dave didn't actually come down with me on that first flight. Um, So he was back in Brisbane. So one of my girlfriends, you know, we're all pretty sporty people and we we all love tennis. So we decided to have, well, she decided to have her hens party in Melbourne and part of that was at the Australian Open. So, yeah, I was, I finished up work on the Friday in the afternoon and I, um, I flew down to Melbourne to watch the Australian Open and catch up with lots of friends that had travelled from, you know, Canberra, Sydney, Melbourne, everywhere to, to be there. Yeah, and things didn't necessarily go to plan once I landed in Melbourne, but yeah. So tell me about that. So did anything happen at the airport itself or did it did things start to go awry when you got to your friend's house? Uh, look, now I think about it, I um, in the afternoon when I was sitting at my desk, I was really busy at work, so I was just trying to get lots of stuff done before I flew to Melbourne, but I'd started to have some, I guess, stomach pain in the afternoon while I was sitting at my desk. I actually rang my obstetrician and had a chat to her about what I was experiencing and feeling. Um, I'd only seen her, I I think it was two days prior to that or three days prior to that, and all the scans were completely normal at that particular point in time. Um, So, yeah, we didn't think it was of any concern. And I guess knowing that I was flying to Melbourne and not somewhere remote, I guess, at that particular point in time, I was meant to be flying into remote Queensland a couple of weeks after that. But I guess knowing that I was flying into Melbourne, a big centre with lots of good hospitals, you know, if my symptoms continued, then at least there'd be, you know, good care in Melbourne that I could go get it checked out. But yeah, we didn't think anything of it at the time because my scans had been completely fine the days prior. And I'd obviously had no complications throughout the whole pregnancy itself yet. So there wasn't kind of any, weren't any red flags to suggest that there could be something wrong. I guess, I don't know, probably half an hour before I landed in Melbourne, my stomach pains got worse and it almost felt like, um, I guess now now that I know what contractions are and I guess they were contractions at the time, but um, I guess when you're 20, well, I was 24 weeks pregnant at that 
particular point, or, yeah, just gone from 24 to 25. You know, everyone thinks it's probably Braxton Hicks or something along those lines. Yeah, so I landed. The pain was becoming more prominent, I guess, and I went back to my girlfriend's house where I was staying. And as the night progressed, they just got more more regular and more severe, the pain, I guess. So we decided to take me into the Royal Women's Hospital because that was close to where she lived and just to get checked out, I guess, thinking, well, I'll go in there. They'll tell me everything's okay. It's just Braxton Hicks and they'll send me on my way and I can go and watch the tennis for the rest of the weekend and see my girlfriend. But um, yeah, that that didn't necessarily happen. (laughs) So you weren't particularly worried. You were just sort of thinking, oh, this is the false alarm of Braxton Hicks and first time mum, so this is all new and... It's, it's really, I must say, in my first pregnancy, I, I was on anxiety times six. <laughs> I don't know. It was just like, because you just don't know. I found that the birth of my second child was really easy because I just wasn't as anxious as I was with the first one. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, it's an interesting thing where when you don't know what to anticipate and when you've heard a lot of other people's birth stories or read a lot of books or watched a lot of videos about pregnancy and, and what it feels like, it's an interesting challenge. So you went into the hospital. What happened when you got into the hospital? What did the clinicians say? Um, so they, I guess they checked me out, um, asked how many weeks I was. Uh, they gave me some, I think it was Panadol or Nurofen, the equivalent, one of those, to see if that would help the pain. And I, I think I sat in the waiting room for maybe half an hour and the pain hadn't, you know, the Panadol hadn't helped at all. So given that and the fact that I was 25 weeks, I think they just decided to take me upstairs to have more of an investigation. Yeah, so they took me upstairs. They did all the standard, I guess, investigations. They did ultrasounds and everything looked okay from that perspective. And then they did some internal examinations. And I think at that particular point in time, they were ready to send me home. I think they just thought it was probably Braxton Hicks, you know, for me to go home and if, if it continued to come back in. But I don't know if it was standard practice or whether it's something they always did, but they did a swab on me, which can show whether you're likely to go into labor imminently or within the next week, I guess. Um, it looks at the enzymes or I'm not a doctor, but yeah, it, it's able to tell whether you're you're looking likely to go into labor. And what the doctors said to me was they, they were expecting that to come back normal and to send me on my merry way. But yeah, the swab results came back that I was likely to go into imminent labor and that my... I th- I think by that stage they thought my waters might have broken. And anyway, they said I was highly likely to go into labour within the next couple of days or week. Um, So I wasn't going anywhere and I was being admitted. So, yeah. That must have come as such a surprise for you. What what were your thoughts? (laughs) I think I was shocked. Um, Yeah, I was completely shocked. I had, you know, obviously everything had been going so well until that point in time. And, yeah, I, I, I think I was speechless. I you know, so many emotions, um, not knowing what to expect. I guess being my first baby as well, I was a little naive as to what being, you know, just 24, just over 24, you know, 25 weeks pregnant meant and, you know, what the next couple of days or months might look like. But yeah, it was pretty scary. So from, so Dave was in Brisbane. So yeah, I, I called him and he was like, oh, I'm, you know, we both, I think, were a little naive for that next 24 hours and thought that, you know, it would all be okay and Jensen would 
stay in and I would just be. <laughs> he would cook a bit longer. Yeah. I'd, um, <laughs> I'd just get stuck in, um, stuck in Melbourne on bed rest for, I don't know, a couple of weeks and then I'd be able to fly home to Brisbane and, yeah, I guess the total naive, like, very naive as to what it's like to have a prem baby and the process that follows, I guess, at that particular point in time. Yeah. Yeah, but from then on there were, I think I'm, I'm scarred for life for having internal examinations done and all those sorts of things. It was um, over the next 24, 48 hours I was um, poked and prodded and investigated, you know, constantly and in a lot of pain. Yeah, so it was quite scary, I guess, and daunting and all a bit surreal. When did Dave come down from Brisbane? (laughs) He actually got there on the Sunday morning. So he was, we were renovating our house back at home and he was doing wardrobes and fixing up things. So he was like, oh, you'll be fine. He's not going to come out. Look, I'll just come (laughs) down on Sunday morning. I'll get everything sorted at the house on Saturday, get our puppy dog Alfie to my parents' house, and then I'll fly down Sunday morning and, you know, hopefully it'll all be okay. So I guess he was in total denial at that particular point in time and now that I think back on it the doctors kept asking me is your husband coming is you know is 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 Dave coming (laughs) and I was like yeah yeah he is coming um he'll be he'll be here tomorrow (laughs) I think um so yeah he did arrive Sunday morning or Sunday lunchtime spent a few hours with me and then he had to go home because he couldn't stay at the hospital and then yeah things got a lot worse on Sunday night and he he made it within 20 minutes of Jensen being delivered so wow was there were there interventions required I presume that your labor just intensified and and got to a point where Jensen said that's it I'm out of here I'm heading into the real world yes I think they tried to they gave me steroids to obviously help him with his lungs if he were to come um so they were I guess they gave I, I was lucky I got the two doses of steroids to help him so if he was born just to give him that extra bit of help with his lungs to, I guess, survive. They were giving me just lots of medication to try and slow the contractions down, I guess. But I don't think there was anything they could really do to stop it. It was just going to happen itself naturally. But they were doing everything they could to, I guess, slow it. You know, they were saying that obviously they wanted to try and get me to 28 weeks, which is when his lungs would be much better for entering the world, uh, much more formed. And it obviously every day counted at that particular point in time for his prognosis and, you know, chance of survival and all those sorts of things. On the Saturday night, I had a whole team of doctors come and sit with me and talk about <laughs> chance of survival and what it's like to have a baby at 25 weeks and what the birth will be. What did be. they say? You know, it's actually pretty amazing. I think babies born at 25 weeks um, have an 80% chance of survival these days, which is, you know, pretty amazing considering probably 10 years ago it wasn't that and 20 years ago it definitely wasn't that. Obviously there's lots of complications with a baby being born at 25 weeks and um, the road to coming home and I guess making it through those first couple of weeks um, is, you know, pretty rough and I kind of, they I guess, gave me a bit of an idea of what it would what the NICU would be like and they took me down and did a I guess they put me in a wheelchair and took me through the NICU just to see what that would be like and I guess just to get my head around what that environment would be like if he came. When you went down to the NICU were there other mums and babies there that you could see? Yeah yeah so the NICU in at the Royal Women's is amazing it's just such an amazing hospital 
basically they've got two long corridors and rooms closest to the door are like the special care nursery I guess so they're babies that aren't as sick or have been there a while and have transitioned to that room and are ready nearly ready to go home and then right at the end of the corridor you've got the intensive care unit so where the sickest babies and the you know the earliest babies are I guess and so you graduate down the hallway I guess <laughs> that's kind of a way of describing it so yeah I don't think I think they took me into one of the the rooms closest to the other end of the thing and there's um the hallway there's four babies in a room essentially and you've got a nurse on on every baby or a nurse to two babies so yeah they took me into one or two and just kind of gave me a bit of a a look around but obviously all of those other mums and dads in those rooms are going through a pretty rough time as well so it wasn't you know I, I didn't really talk to anyone at that particular point in time it was just kind of getting a feel of what the NICU looked like. Was that scary for you Kobe? Was it like to be pregnant yourself knowing that you're going to have a premature baby and then being sort of almost walked through that whole space to show you what's going to happen? Did, mm. Were you overwhelmed by it? Yeah yeah I think so and not having Dave there as well yeah I guess I guess Dave and I just keep saying it was probably lucky it was our first baby and not our second because, you know, we, we didn't have another child at home to worry about or to look after, but we we had no idea about anything baby-related. I mean, I hadn't even been to a birthing class yet. I hadn't, I hadn't been to any neonatal classes at the hospital because I'd been so busy at work, I just kept pushing them back. And I was actually scheduled, I think I was scheduled to have one a week or two after Jensen was born, have my first, like, what it's like to go into labour and breathing and, you know, whatever they do in those classes that get you ready to have a baby. Um, I've never had one. I've never been to one, actually. So, yeah, I had missed all of those things. So I, I had no idea about anything. I was totally naive as to what it was going to be like to have a baby, which is probably a good thing, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> But yeah, so and then obviously they had a they talked to me about um you know the birth won't be like a normal birth you're not just going to have an obstetrician and a a nurse or a doctor there uh, or a pediatrician it will be a room full of people and not to be overwhelmed by that but I think there was probably ten or fifteen people in the room when I was when I had Jensen so you have obviously the standard team. And then you've got the the NICU intensive care team behind you ready to hook him up and, yeah, get him breathing. Yeah, it was, yeah, I guess preparing me for everything that was about to happen. (laughs) Yeah. So then when Sunday night came, Mm. did things just escalate and, you know, despite all the efforts to slow the labour down, did your body just sort of say, nope, this is happening? Could you tell me what happened in those those hours leading up to that? Yeah. um, So I guess. I think Saturday things had been like my contractions or my pain had started to increase and I'd had a bit of bleeding. Um, And then Saturday night things started to, I guess, calm down a little bit. I felt like things were slowing a little bit and maybe I'd be able to hold on for a bit longer. Sunday morning, I actually felt quite good. I guess when Dave got there, I, um, you know, I I was having pain, I was having contractions and I was bleeding and They'd been monitoring me pretty closely. I think I was wheeled down to the birth suite probably 10 times because they thought I was, you know, going to have him or to check um, how dilated I was and, to, you know. Just, Talk about stress-inducing. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, but my waters hadn't broken, which they worked out later. By Sunday lunchtime, I guess the pain had started to increase quite a bit, but I didn't expect to have him Sunday night. I thought maybe 
you know, maybe Monday, Tuesday, something, you know, things might progress a bit more. But yeah, I think around dinner time on Sunday, they, the pain just got, it just increased significantly. And I guess the contractions were really regular. Now that I know what it's like to have contractions. Yeah. My bleeding started. I was just, yeah, I was in a lot of pain. I was, you know, I couldn't, I get, I was in labor. <laughs> the pain became not manageable anymore. And so one of the doctors came to check on me and I think they realized then that I was going to have the baby really soon. So things had just escalated really quickly. I don't think anyone thought that I was going to have the baby that night. So then, yeah, I called Dave. <laughs> he was, um, he just got back to my friend's house. So basically they turned around and drove straight back to the hospital um, so he arrived, well I, had Jensen, well, I had Jensen at 11.31 p.m. So I think Dave must have arrived around 11 o'clock or 10.45 or whatever. So within the hour. <laughs> um, wow. And, you know, he, he says he, he, he finally made it into the birthing suite area and the nurses said to him, she's in there, you're about to have a baby. And he was like, what, what? So what, uh, what, <laughs> we're having the baby and they're like, you're having the baby, get in there now. <laughs> so I think but still at that point in time, he was, um, I don't think he thought it was actually going to happen. So, and then it just, it happened very, very, very quickly. A lot of mums in the NICU end up having to have cesareans, I guess, emergency cesareans. But yeah, Jensen decided to come naturally and that's what was happening. They give you magnesium to help with the birth just to, I think it's to um, help with coming through the birth canal and to protect his head and all those sorts of things. But they, they couldn't get the magnesium into me quick enough. So basically I got I got all the magnesium after he was actually born. <laughs> um, <laughs> the drip wasn't working properly. Yeah, he, he arrived Sunday night very quickly and much sooner than I had anticipated. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. Now, when a baby's born that early, you know, normally when a person has a baby, the first thing they listen for is that cry. Mm. What happened for you when Jensen arrived? Yeah, he arrived and then he was immediately rushed off to the table behind with a whole lot of doctors to get him breathing because he wasn't, I don't think he was breathing. There were definitely no cries. Um, I didn't hear him cry for a long time. Yeah, they immediately hooked him up to um, life support. So he was ventilated. Then the nurse quickly brought him over and put him on my chest for, I don't know, a space of three seconds or four seconds maybe, which was pretty uh, horrific because he was only 762 grams. So he was the size of a 
a Coke can. He wasn't completely formed. His skin was translucent. And because he'd come out so quickly, he was having trouble. His heart rate was going crazy when he was coming out. So they were they were really worried about him at that particular point in time. But he, I managed to he, deliver him naturally without them having to intervene, I guess, in other ways. But I don't know, his, his head was black and he... It, all I can describe is it looked like bubble wrap, like it, it looked, it wasn't a, a nice round head like you see a baby that comes out that it was, it was black and it was bubble. That's, that's, yeah. So it, yeah, it was pretty horrifying. It was, um yeah. So he was literally chucked on me and then whisked away, ventilated up to the NICU straight away. So then I was left in the room by myself with a few nurses um, and Dave was rushed up to the NICU with Jensen. And that was the weirdest moment. It was just, I was just like, what, you know, what has just happened? You know, I think when they were wheeling me into the birth suite before it actually happened, I think at that particular point in time, I knew that this was probably, I started crying at that particular point in time because I think um, I knew that this was the moment that he was actually going to come. And I think at that particular point in time, you know, you realise he's only, he's only just 25 weeks. Like, am I going to lose my baby? Um, is he actually going to survive? And then, you know, what are the next month or, you know, years ahead going to look like with a, with a child born that early? So, yeah, that moment was pretty terrifying and I was by myself at that particular point in time. So, and, yeah, then laying, after the, laying on the bed after the birth and just having – just having given birth to Jensen and not having him there and Dave not being there either. It was um, a pretty surreal moment of, you know, what, what has just happened and how, how is, how is this actually happening? Oh, wow. That's horrible. So what, why did they want Dave to go straight up to the NICU? Was he to sit with the baby or what was his, what was his role? Um, Yeah, I, I guess just to be with the doctors as they transported him up to the room and to, I guess, see where he was going to be. Um, so that when I was ready to go up, that he could take me, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, if he hadn't have been there, he obviously wouldn't have been able, there wouldn't have been anyone to go up with him. He would have just gone up with yeah. the doctors. But I think, um, yeah, Dave wanted to go up with him as well. And, you know, I wanted Dave to go up with him as well. I kind of didn't want him to be to be left alone and to, you know, and not knowing at that particular point in time how sick he was or, you know, what had just happened, like whether he... You know, I had no idea how he was, um, yeah. how his lungs were, how he, you know, I had no idea about anything at that particular point in time. So, yeah, it was nice to know that Dave was up there with him. So what did they tell you once they got Jensen settled and arrived in the NICU and you had sort of recovered slightly? What what was the prognosis or what did they tell you about Jensen? Um, I guess that it's going to be a long road with lots of ups and downs. So he was he was ventilated, so he obviously wasn't able to breathe on his own because he was a 25-weeker. I guess at that point in time then they had to do lots of um, ultrasounds and all sorts of tests to, you know, to fully assess him. So they didn't really know themselves at that particular point in time, you know, what his prognosis or what issues he had, I guess, other than that. He was alive, he was ventilated and doing as best he could for a 25-weeker at that particular point in time. So his eyes were completely fused shut, so his eyes weren't open at all, which the doctors um, had said, are you sure he's a 25-weeker? You know, he normally by 25 weeks their eyes are, are generally open. Could he have been? Could it have been a bit earlier? So maybe late 24s and I don't know, maybe. Um, but, yeah, his eyes, his eyes were completely fused shut. 
they didn't open. I think they didn't open for about seven days. They weren't ready to open. His skin was purple, like completely translucent. You know, his ears hadn't even formed properly. They, the cartilage hadn't gone into his little ear earlobes. And he was black and bruised and he just had, you know, he was ventilated, but he had lines coming in and out of his stomach to get nutrients and vitamins and antibiotics and blood lines into him. Yeah, he was full of tubes and breathing support and he was hooked up to you know, what felt like a thousand monitors and he was in an incubator. He had bubble wrap all around him um, to help regulate his temperature because he was so small um, and to try and stabilise him. Definitely wasn't um, like a normal birth where you've you've got a healthy baby that's um, and put straight on you. So, yeah, he was, he was very unwell for a, a period of time. Wow. So at what point were you able to go and, and spend time with Jensen? How long did it take for you to get in that wheelchair and get to where he was to sit next to him? Um, I, it pro- oh, gosh, um, probably within the hour. They're pretty on to you in the NICU immediately to get you down there, but they're also they like to get your milk supply in as soon as possible um, because obviously the baby needs milk to survive and if you can't produce milk obviously that's completely fine they can they like breast milk to be used for that first couple of you know first week or whatever it is just to get as much nutrients into the baby as possible if they're born that early but obviously if if a mum can't get their milk in sometimes they can get donated breast milk in to give to the baby or obviously formula is fine as well but so they try and you know, obviously at 25 weeks, your milk supply isn't naturally supposed to be coming in yet. So yeah, they're onto you basically. I felt like I had um, nurses squeezing my my boobs, <laughs> trying to get milk out. And basically once being in the NICU and having a baby born that early, it's it's like a production chain then for the months that follow. Like it's everything is, there's a schedule for everything. That's what your day is. Your day is purely based around, you know, sitting, I, you sit with your baby all day long if you're able to. Some mums obviously have to go back to work or, you know, or can only be there when they can. But I obviously had nowhere else to go because Melbourne wasn't my home. So I spent every waking moment with Jensen as long as I could. So I sat with him and his incubator and watched the machines and learnt a lot. I could, um, at one point, I thought maybe I should become a nurse now that I've <laughs> learnt all these things. But yeah, I, I, I was probably down there within the hour and then we were recommended to go home and get some sleep and come back first first thing in the morning which is then a you know that's a completely um foreign idea as well like you know you've just given birth to a baby who's incredibly sick and then you leave it <laughs> that's <laughs> and, hard yeah and then obviously then trying to work out where I stay for the next period of time and yeah it was um yeah it was it was pretty full on they I I I said to the doctors um prior to Jensen being born can I just get on a plane and fly to Brisbane just let me get on a plane and fly to Brisbane and then I'll go straight to the hospital in Brisbane where I was supposed to deliver and they were like no 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 it can happen any moment and I think again so naive but it happened so quickly and he was delivered so quickly that you know of course, I should never have got on that plane to go back to Brisbane. Right. So where did you and Dave end up staying for the several months while you waited for Jensen to grow? Yeah. Um, so the hospital, they're amazing. They've got, I guess, hospital accommodation for people that like myself. I stayed there for about a week, I think. And then I didn't necessarily feel, because Dave obviously had to go back home for work. So I was there by myself during the week. I didn't necessarily feel safe 
by myself in the area that the hospital accommodation was in and it was a little distance from the hospital so I you know if I was going to be there late at night you know with Jensen I didn't want to be walking back by myself. Yeah, I was really lucky. I found some accommodation. A few of my friends organised a bit of a a fundraiser type thing to help, you know, with us. And we we managed to get some accommodation really close to the hospital, just around the corner. You know, nothing special. It was just a little one bedroom studio that I could stay in, but walk back and forth every day. So yeah, I, I, yeah, just, just down the road from the hospital. Yeah, that's good. Wonderful friends. Yes. Wonderful friends. <laughs> so you sat there for several months watching Jensen. What did you see as he started to grow and develop? Yeah, that must have been quite an interesting perspective. Yeah, it is actually. Um, I guess that that's one thing Dave and I have said, you know, obviously you don't get to see them develop when they're when they're inside you. And it is pretty amazing to watch them grow and develop on the outside. Probably the first eight weeks were horrible. You know, he was so unstable. I can't even uh, I can't even I, don't, I can't even count the amount of times that he went blue or, or a shade of purple and his heart rate basically dropped to nothing and his heart rate skyrocketed and his oxygen levels dropped to nothing and you know the emergency buttons pushed and you have eight doctors rushing through the door to try and like keep him alive even though he's already on the ventilator <laughs> He was ventilated for almost a month. He was on the ventilator for about a week and then they took him off and put him on um, CPAP, which is a form of another form of respiratory support, which opens the lung sacs to help you breathe. But he couldn't handle that. He lasted at about, I think it was about a week or two on CPAP and then his lungs just started to collapse and he was really unwell. That was a that was a pretty horrible day. So they had to put him back on the ventilator, which was not ideal. That's not what you want to do, obviously, because you don't want to you don't want to get a baby used to the ventilator for infection and also it's not a good sign if they're not able to get off that that full ventilation. So he was on the ventilator again for another couple of weeks and yeah, his lungs just weren't improving at all. So it's true there's so many ups and downs in the NICU. Like one moment you think you're going along okay and then you get the call to say that he's gone downhill again and he needs a blood transfusion and they're doing more scans of his brain or his heart, you know, they don't know what's going on. They're doing, you know, permission to do more lung x-rays and see what's going on. Yes, he was ventilated again, but they kept saying, worst case scenario, if we can't get him off the ventilator, we'll give him steroids. But we, you know, that's a last case scenario because, you know, we don't want to give him steroids unless he has to. Um, I think years and years and years ago, they used to give steroids quite often. And that's how a lot of children ended up with cerebral palsy obviously other reasons for that as well but that's been discovered to be a risk factor and and then obviously when you've got your oxygen levels they have to maintain the oxygen levels to a particular point like you can't have a child in 100% oxygen because that then impacts their vision and their eyes and all sorts of things so Jensen was that baby in the in the NICU that had a nurse on him 24-7 because he's, like, his monitors just beeped and, like, I still, <laughs> whenever I hear a, a beep that sounds like a, a monitor from the NICU, it makes me feel unwell. It's just he was just constantly beeping and going up and down so the doctors were constantly having to adjust his oxygen levels to make sure that he was getting enough to, you know, get better and survive but not giving him too much that would potentially harm him in other ways. But, yeah, he ended up having to have 10 days of steroids because they couldn't get him off the ventilator. So he had 10 days of steroids, which then does other crazy things. Steroids obviously make you puffy and very swollen. So he just, you know, blew up um, and was very puffy. But yeah, those 10 days um, worked and he got off the ventilator finally. 
Um, and then he was on CPAP for another six weeks, I think, after that. And then he went to, obviously, there's different levels of CPAP. So he started on the highest form possible and then they weaned him down as he was able. And then he went to high flow and low flow and, yeah, lots of ups and downs constantly. I think, you know, every single day you had no idea what was, what was going to happen. I remember walking in one day and, you know, the night before he'd been what Dave and I thought was completely fine. And then we walked in on the Sunday morning and, he had doctors all around him doing brain scans, heart scans, ultrasounds. They all looked incredibly worried and Dave and I were like, what is going on? And it turns out that I think they thought he was brain dead at that particular point in time. Oh, gosh. But it, I think that's when I lost it. I, I broke down at that particular point in time because yeah, it was just so up and down. Like you had no idea what was going to happen and it had worked because they sedated him because he, he was also very cheeky. He used to f- uh, fight the ventilator, so he'd stop breathing to fight it because he didn't like it, and he'd try and rip it out of his mouth. Me- like he'd tr- use his arms to move the wires everywhere. Yeah, so they had to sedate him so he wouldn't fight the ventilator as much. He, his body just didn't handle it, so it basically put him into like a, a bit of a coma. So oh, they had to wean him off the sedation, and then he came back to life, I guess. Oh, Lots Kobe, of ups this and downs. Is just, oh, gosh, trauma, trauma for parents. Now, could you touch him through at any point through this? Because he's he's in this incubator and he's ventilated and he's, you know, are you able to actually touch and feel him as his mum? Yeah. So the Royal Women's in Melbourne is actually amazing in that respect. I mean, all hospitals are. It's called kangaroo care where they do skin on skin with the mum um, and it's really encouraged for babies that are born early to get them onto the mum's skin or the dad's skin so they have that familiar kind of smell and scent and touch and it has been proven to help them with their you know their development and getting better um so yeah i think i didn't hold jensen for probably i wasn't allowed to hold him for about a week after he was born um and then probably i think it was five days and then um i was allowed to do a kangaroo care on my chest and i guess when babies are that sick and that small if you do those sorts of cuddles you generally have to be out for a good couple of hours with him because it's it's really traumatic for the child to be taken out of the incubator and moved around uh, and put onto mum's chest and then be taken off again and put back in so yeah you're out for a couple of hours which is also amazing getting that you know one-on-one yeah so I think Dave and I held him it was maybe five to seven days after he was born and we both got our first hold which was pretty you know amazing but incredibly scary because you realize how how frail he is um and how small he is you know my ring fit all the way up to his shoulder blade and up his legs he was and he was just you know by that stage i think he dropped to about 650 grams and he was he was tiny he was he was so small and he had tubes coming out him everywhere but yeah during the day i could hold his hand so i could put my hand and i could read him books i was going to ask you that i was going to ask you if you would talk to him and and tell him stories or what you would do because I I think I would if I was in that position I've never been in that position thankfully but I would just want to talk to my baby (laughs) (laughs) were you giving him words of encouragement um throughout that whole period yeah we were yeah we were talking I was talking to him constantly and reading him books and there were points in time where he was that unstable that the nurses told me I, I couldn't even talk to him I couldn't hold him I couldn't talk to him that was probably the time that just before he got put back on the ventilator when he was at his sickest um yeah the nurses told me they uh, he just had to be in a dark place in his incubator um with no stimulation so that was pretty hard yet being told i couldn't even hold his hand or talk to him 
but yeah, most days we got a cuddle um, and most uh, and yeah, I sat with him every day talking to him and holding his hand. And obviously the nurses, um, it becomes a bit of a routine. So once they're getting a little bit better, then the nurses get you to help them with their, they're called their cares. So obviously the nurses have to get them out of the incubator and wipe them down and keep them you know, fresh and clean so they're not getting any bed sores and, you know, all those sorts of things and take their prongs off and clean so that there's, you know, for no infection and, you know, all those sorts of things. So, and change their nappies. The I've still got the, the first nappy that Jensen was in for that first week or two, you know, not the nappy he was in, but a version of it out of the packet. And it's the smallest thing you'll ever imagine. The nappy is, it's like half of the palm of your hand and that's the size of it, wow. not even... I, you know, you don't even think that they make nappies that small, but they exist. So you're constantly helping with their care and wiping them down and, you know, changing their nappy. And, and then every three hours you have to express milk and then you have to label the bottles and put them in the fridge and then go clean the bottles at the sink. So it, it's the days go really fast. You're, you're sitting there with your child, you're helping with their cares, you're getting every cuddle you can possibly get and then you, you're expressing your milk and then that process starts all over again. So it's amazing how fast the day can go and you make really amazing friends in the NICU as well. Like I've, um yeah, friends for life, I guess. Like, you know, other people can try and understand what it's like to go through that and especially, you know, having a extreme prematurity, like 25 weeks, it's very up and down. So, yeah, I made some amazing friends that in that NICU room that, you know, we'll have for life. <laughs> it's just a pity they're in Melbourne and not Brisbane. <laughs> so, Kobe, at what point? So he was, Jensen was in that hospital for, what was it, three or four months? At what point did they say, you can go home? Yeah, so I guess I'd been asking from the very beginning you know, how we can get home. Like, could we get him on a flight? I'll pay for the flight. How can we make it happen? You know, not sure how that would happen, but, you know, obviously do everything you possibly can to, to get home. He was too unstable. He was he was just, there was no way that he could go in a in an aeroplane in, in air pressure up in, you know, to get home. So they just kept saying to me that once he's stable enough, they'll explore how he might get home and look at options, whether that be a, a medical flight like the Royal Flying Doctors or a commercial flight, but have Rose allocated to him at the front with a whole medical team, I guess. So he couldn't just, I couldn't take him. That was never an option. It was, he was always going to have to have a, some sort of medical transfer. And that actually proved much more difficult than, I didn't think it would be that difficult, but it's actually quite difficult because they've got a the logistical, they've got to have people on the flight that are qualified, have the right incubators for him to be in. And obviously he had to be okay to fly and stable enough to get on that plane. So he was in Melbourne for 101 days. Wow. I think it was on day 90 or 95 or something. Um, the, the doctor came around and said, um, I've got good news. The Royal Flying Doctors are going to take you home. So yeah, that was um, that was pretty amazing. But typical, like I think at that particular point in time, it had just been such a rough a hundred and something days that I got a cold right before oh, no. he was expected to go home. And, and obviously, you know, you can't go into any anywhere like the NICU with any kind of cold because it could just kill a baby or you know make them really unwell. By the time the Royal Flying Doctors arrived to take us home, I was pretty much better. I was almost better, um, but I still didn't want to risk getting on that plane and passing on my cold to the team, on the Royal Flying Doctors team, um, or, you know, Jensen in particular. So Dave flew in and um, I had my mask on and I we, we met the amazing... 
Royal Flying Doctors team, um, the medical transport car at the hospital. Yeah, they um, off Dave and Jensen went in the medical ambulance with the amazing um, flight nurse. It was uh, a lady called Kate Dickinson, I think. And yeah, she collected us with the team and yeah, they, they went to the airport and then were transferred into the plane to fly home. So I was getting photo updates the whole way. But um, yeah, and then I obviously caught a commercial flight. <laughs> yeah. And they went via uh, Dubbo, if I remember right. Yeah, that's correct. Um, yep. They yeah. stopped in Dubbo to refuel and do whatever else they needed to do obviously something I'm not sure what that was we then they landed in Brisbane and then there was another medical transfer to take Jensen to the hospital in Brisbane what what did Dave think of that flight and he hadn't spent as much time obviously with his baby boy and there Mm. he was suddenly transporting Jensen back home in an intensive care unit uh, in the sky what were his thoughts yeah I think we were just both so thankful that we were able to go home the team was just you know he said they were so lovely everyone was you know, really welcoming and just, you know, made him and Jensen feel not nervous, I guess, um, as calm as possible. Yeah, it, it, it was a pretty seamless flight, I guess, you know, Jensen, by that stage, Jensen was 101 days old. So he was, he was doing pretty well. He was only on, he was on low flow oxygen at that particular point in time. Yeah, the team was just really, they were just amazing. We can't thank you guys That's enough true. for getting us home. <laughs> I guess you always think the Royal Flying Doctors comes to, um, you know, will come to your aid if you're in remote outback Queensland. But, you know, we were just so thankful that they were able to take us um from Melbourne to Brisbane. You must have been so happy to get back into your own home and your own bed, Kobe, and to to have your baby there. So there's on the one hand, you've got that emotion of just, oh, thankfully I'm out of a hospital and I'm home. But on the other hand, you are now responsible for this little baby Mm. that has been through the most outrageous journey. How were you feeling as far as that went? Yeah, I was uh, exactly like you said, I guess. I was so excited to be in my own bed and um, see my puppy dog. You know, he was only a few months old when he got carted off to my parents' house for four months and to just be closer to my support network, I guess. I mean, I'd made a, I'd made an amazing support network in Melbourne um, at the hospital. They, it became my second home. You know, I can't thank them enough. The Royal Women's Hospital is honestly amazing (laughs) yeah it was just so good to get home and to be in my own bed and to be with closer to you know obviously dad we could all be there together and to have my friends close by as well all my girlfriends but um yeah I mean Dave flew down most weekends so I think he in the end he did 26 flights um to Melbourne (laughs) over that course of time expensive baby yeah (laughs) we were very lucky that one of our friends worked for Virgin at the time so um helped us get some cheaper flights back and forth Uh, it was good to be home but it was also really scary because I guess that's when you you think well okay we've been in hospital for so long he's been hooked up to monitors for so long we've had 24-hour care constantly and then we're about to bring him home and it's just up to us (laughs) yeah that was really scary he's five and a half now and I still check that he's breathing every single night you know (laughs) Um, oh wow yeah and that first year was because he has chronic lung disease so we were you know he he for that first year or two we were told he can't go to daycare and he basically just has to be kept in a bit of a bubble I guess to make sure that he doesn't get sick or to get any infections so 
yeah, I guess we, we were out of hospital, but uh, yeah, we had to be very careful with him for a, a period of time. And he has lots of little things now like that we, we deal with every day. Um, he, we're very lucky. He's a little miracle. And um, yeah, for a 25-weeker, he's done incredibly well. But, you know, the last five years have also been tough in other ways as well, but he's doing amazing. <laughs> so could you give me a little bit of a snapshot into Jensen's life today as a five and a half year old. Is he happy? Is he settled? Is he juggling chronic health conditions or, or just simply, you know, charging at life in the, <laughs> with the enthusiasm of a five-year-old? Yeah. Like how, how is Jensen? Yeah, all of that, I guess. He's a very happy, he's a very energetic, he's a super sensitive little boy. He loves life. He, so he was, he was diagnosed with very, very mild cerebral palsy in his legs. So but you wouldn't know. He's been seeing a physio since birth and he climbs amazingly. He runs, you know, he there's no problems there at all. It's just there's a little bit, I guess, with his coordination and stuff, he's a bit behind. Yeah, he's got like, he, he's great. He's got some learning difficulties. He's been diagnosed with a few different things. So we see an, an occupational therapist every a week and a speech therapist. Yeah, I think he's definitely got a little bit of anxiety, which is probably, I don't know whether that's a subconscious thing. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's understandable. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, really, to spend your first hundred and one days in that environment, and I mean, I think that's definitely understandable. Mm. I mean, when we we were at the hospital for another week and a half in in Brisbane, but you know, that was just getting us ready to come home. He was still, you know, in in the NICU, but in the special care unit, getting ready to come home. But um, yeah, he's he's great. He's he's got he's got some lung issues. He's he gets sick at the drop of the hat. His immune system is shocking, and he's sensitive and he's he's just beautiful. He's a you know he's a kind, sweet little boy, and he would have no idea what he's been through. <laughs> we'll tell him one day. He's he's seen some photos and he asked some questions, but. Um, I guess it'll be a good story when he's older that he was born at 25 weeks and got stuck in Melbourne and the Royal Flying Doctors brought him home. He's <laughs> he's still got his Royal Flying Doctors plane on his shelf in his bedroom. So, yeah, yeah, he's he's a he's <laughs> a he's a great little boy. He's got he's got a few little challenges, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, he's he's fantastic. He's a miracle. Yeah. Oh, Kobe, I think look, my hat is off to you and Dave, honestly. <laughs> Gosh, what loving and dedicated parents Jensen has. I'm sure he's going to do really, really well. He's had his challenges already, so the rest is going to be cruising. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's got a two-year-old sister that bosses him around already. So Perfect. Yeah. That's exactly what an older brother needs yeah. is a younger sister that can just harass the hell out of him. Yeah, yeah. I managed to have her at full term, so... Um... With lots of um, lots of difficulties through that pregnancy, so there won't be any more pregnancies. But um, yeah, she they're best friends. They love each other, so <laughs> it's nice. That's fantastic. I really appreciate you walking me through this and and letting me sit in your chair next to Jensen for 101 days. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain. And yeah, I think you're incredibly brave, you and Dave. Holy moly, <laughs> I reckon he's he's made a good choice. Has Jensen <laughs> made a great choice? Thank you. Um, lots of, lots of. Unfortunately, probably lots of parents go through it, and yeah, every journey is different. But yeah, thank you. <laughs> We're very lucky. Fantastic. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. 
you can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Thanks again for listening. Hi, this is Rosalind from Caldwood, New South Wales, and that's on the south coast of New South Wales. Just calling to say how much I love your podcast. I really look forward to a new one being released each Thursday. Thank you for it and keep up the good work. Bye. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.